Hello, and welcome to the What If It's Not Depression podcast. Whether you're here to learn about the root causes of depressive-like symptoms, wanting to know more about alternative solutions, or you're a biohacker looking to optimize your mental health and brain, this podcast is for you. I am Dr. Achina Stein, and I will be your host on your journey to resolving depressive-like symptoms and optimizing your mood. You're listening to the What If It's Not Depression podcast, hosted by Dr. Achina Stein. And so I actually did my residency in internal medicine, thinking that I was going to be a hospitalist or a general practitioner. And it wasn't until really that last rotation where I had to do an osteopathic manipulative rotation where I realized, I think this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. That landed me out here in Lancaster County doing house calls with the Amish. So for a long time, I realized that my internal medicine background was of no use because they weren't interested in any of it, which is what led me into beginning to go down that integrative medicine path because I realized I didn't have tools to help them. My approach to depression is to get the, the head decongested and get the lymphatics moving and connect the brain to the gut because those are the two biggest connections. And so it offers a completely different view of depression. And I put my hands on people and I get so passionate and sometimes frustrated that as a medical community, we call that depression and it's not. So today I'm interviewing Dr. Candace Boyer and she is an osteopathic physician just like me, we're both DOs and we're both trained in osteopathic medicine, but she does osteopathic manipulative medicine and integrative medicine. And so she has a very specialized training within the osteopathic field. And she's been practicing both of those areas for 13 years. She's also the medical director and founder of Lancaster County Osteopathic and Integrative Health where they give people the real health using her particular approach. The four pillars to real health are simple nutrition, toxin management, true motion, and empowered choices. Welcome, Dr. Boyer. Thank you. Thank for you for having me. Appreciate your time squeezing my lunch and learn to inform uh, my audience about the kinds of things that you do and particularly some of the things that you do differently for your population. I know you're out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania area, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you're involved in the Amish community. I would love for you to tell me about your journey there and uh, as an osteopathic physician doing OMM and integrative medicine. So I will give you the floor to start with that. Awesome. Well, thank you for having me. I certainly appreciate the invitation and it's always fun to just work together and, and help people to continue to improve their education and their knowledge so that they can make empowered choices for their health. So awesome. I'm so glad you're doing this. (laughs) My journey, honestly, I went to osteopathic medical school for a reason because I really liked the osteopathic approach and the osteopathic philosophy. What I didn't know is I really liked the osteopathic manipulative medicine part, which is that hands-on piece that allows us to diagnose and, and treat the body in a completely different way than any other modality that's available. Mm -hmm. And so I actually did my residency in internal medicine, thinking that I was going to be a hospitalist or a general practitioner. And it wasn't until really that last rotation where I had to do an osteopathic 
manipulative rotation where I realized, I think this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. So I kind of trained, changed courses and did my fellowship in osteopathic manipulative medicine. Cool. And then that landed me out here in Lancaster County doing house calls with the Amish. So for a long time, I realized that my internal medicine background was of no use because wow. they weren't interested in any of it, right? <laughs> um, and so my husband often jokes that I used my prescription pad as a notepad because we didn't, I didn't prescribe anything. <laughs> <laughs> so what were they interested in? You, you say they weren't interested in traditional medicine. What were they interested in? So they were more interested, obviously, in the osteopathic manipulative part, um, but also natural and integrative things, which is what led me into beginning to go down that integrative medicine path because I realized I didn't have tools to help them. So either I was going to, let's say, ear infection, right? They're going to come in. I'm going to obviously treat them osteopathically, and that may be enough to get the ear infection to go around away, but most likely they need some sort of antimicrobial on top of that. They're not interested in antibiotics, right? Mm -hmm. And so either I was gonna know how to prescribe them something natural or just let them do whatever culturally grandmom told me to do. And, and some of it's good and some of it's not. And so that's how I kind of got on the trajectory of beginning my integrative medicine journey because I realized besides the OMM, I didn't have many tools to help the population that I was serving. Right, right. You know, since this is about depression, or what if it's not yeah. depression, right? You know, yeah, what are some of the things that you do to help people who have depression or anxiety in that population? What have you seen work? So I'm a little biased because that's what I do for a living, but the osteopathic manipulative medicine and the specifically the cranial osteopathy is a huge benefit. Um, I see a large... Um, pregnancy population. And so what we're seeing is postpartum depression. And in reality, if I can get their, their OA and their lumbosacral junction moving, those are just two parts kind of at the back of the head and at the base of the spine that the, they don't get postpartum depression. Mm. And so I have an osteopathic view of depression is me going by what my hands tell me, right? And so my hands are be, are able to feel and assess something at a, at a way different level than can, let's say, an MRI or a CAT scan or any of those things. And so I can almost always, I can put my hands on someone's head and know whether they have depression or anxiety wow. like this. And it's wow. not really hard to do, but it, it allows me to say, okay, some people who have heads that feel like this sometimes suffer with mood changes. How's your mood? And it's one of those things where it's, it's never been wrong. So when you pick up a head that is, has depression or anxiety, it is so heavy. There's just an extra weight to it. And so what I have learned in my osteopathic journey is that when that head is heavy, there's a different physiology to depression that we're not addressing from the medical standpoint or even the integrative standpoint. Right. And that is, we, we now know that there are lymphatics in the brain, right? right? And that the two biggest areas in our body that have lymphatics are our gut and the brain. And when that head is heavy, what that means to me physiologically is that the cerebral spinal fluid is not fluctuating like it should. Right. And so when I tell people the brain should be like a wet sponge and there should be like a hole in the middle. 
That hole should be filled with fluid. The sponge should be wet and filled with fluid. And then it floats in a bucket of water. The bucket is the bones. Mm. Everything else is on the inside. So if that brain doesn't have enough at the fluid that it should, and it doesn't expand and contract like it should, then it's the thing that would happen if your plumbing gets congested, right? Right. That sink is going to overflow and that fluid doesn't, it, when it's a sink, it flows over and goes onto the floor. But when it's in our brain and in our bones, it doesn't have anywhere to go. So right. that congestion leads to pressure and it leads to the neurons and the microglia, which those are the cells in your brain, right? Every cell needs to get nutrients from fluid, from that extracellular, that, that stuff that surrounds all of our cells. It gets fluid and gets its nutrients and the things that it needs, but then it needs to be able to take that stuff and get rid of it, right? So the byproducts of the all of the, the work that that cell needs to do on a medical level, like that cellular respiration, all that Krebs cycle, all that stuff that gets formed from that needs to go away, right? right? And so from an osteopathic viewpoint that needs to get into the lymphatics and then get out into the rest of the body. And we know that the head and neck drain into somewhere around here, right? From the lymphatics. Correct. And so all that to say, my approach to depression is to get the, the head decongested and get the lymphatics moving and connect the brain to the gut because those are the two biggest connections. And so it offers a completely different view of depression. And I put my hands on people and I get so passionate and sometimes frustrated that as a medical community, we call that depression. And it's not, it's not, it, it's I not, know. it's not. I know. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> Thank you. And oh, even I know. It's a huge pet peeve of mine. I, you know, yeah. that we call something, something, and just, just to attach a pill to it. You know, and I know. these medications don't work for some people and certain, certainly a, it's life-saving, but it's not the answer to every type of depression. Yeah. And, it, and there's always other methods that you can, that you can put in place to bring the body back into balance. And what you're talking about is decongesting the brain and removing toxin buildup essentially. That's exactly it. And that's why when we look at that four pillars for us, simple nutrition is obviously the number one thing, right? We got to get the proper nutrients in, but that toxin management piece, like I find that it's the biggest piece that we don't understand as medical providers and even as integrative medicine providers, because there are no markers, right? There are no lab work. There's no saliva tests. There's nothing we can do to measure how someone's managing their toxins. And so what we tell people is managing your toxins is goes into and goes out of, right? right? So right. minimizing the goes into, minimizing the toxins that you're putting in your body, but then maximizing your body's ability to get rid of these toxins. Right, right. Right. And, you know, I want to just clarify, you're right that there's no markers for that sluggishness, but if the markers that you know, we were trained as physicians to look at our like liver functions or, you know, interleukin or cytokines or, you know, cardiac enzymes, like enzymes and things like that, that by that point, it's too late. <laughs> it's your, right. Your, it's yeah. It's your, your liver is 60 to 80% non-functioning before your liver function tests even make one ticker. 
And so that's just the added benefit of being an osteopathic physician and trained to be able to feel that because we can feel a liver. I can feel a head and say the lymphatics of your brain are just way congested. I can feel a liver and say it's just not moving the way that it's supposed to, right? right. Um, and so it allows, it's just an extra objective measure on that, that toxin management scale of things. Right. And so that's really where the coffee enemas come in. Right. For multiple right. reasons. Yeah. Right. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So yeah, I'm, you know, I, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a bit jealous because I'm a DO too. And I was, um, uh, you know, trained in OMM in medical school, but once I started my psychiatric residency, we were told that we couldn't touch our patients. And I mean, I graduated in 1990. So, um, and I started, I graduated from residency in 94 and, but in the last 10 years, the bylaws have changed in allowing psychiatrists to do OMM. So this is like 20 years later. So I've been learning more osteopathic manipulation, going back to those roots and, yeah. and starting to put my hands on my patients when, you know, when I can, uh, particularly if people have migraines or shoulder, you know, or, you know, some kind of issues where, you know, doing so, some OMM. So, but I, I really wish I had not lost the touch that I, used to have when I was a medical student. And so I'm hoping to get those that back at some point and, and do what you're doing just to even feel that heaviness in the head that you're, that you're noticing in people who have depression. So, so you have developed a protocol to help removing those toxins. You know, I know those toxins are in your brain, but you just mentioned coffee enema. So I just want you to connect the dots for the audience about Okay, how does how do coffee enemas help clear your brain? <laughs> yeah, so that is an amazing question. Let me start by, if you're okay with this, just going through a little bit of the history and the, and how coffee enemas work, and then we'll kind of swing around and then reconnect them for Absolutely. everybody. Absolutely, go right ahead. So coffee enemas are gross, right? Like who like even ever thought that that would be a good idea? to stick a tube into your rectum and put coffee in it. Like, I don't, I don't know, but the interesting thing is they've been around and been in use since the early 1900s and they were actually in our Merck manual. So for those of us listening, Merck manual was really the manual of medicine. And so we still use it today. Of course it's digital, but you can look up an almond and learn all the stuff from a medical standpoint in the Merck manual. I have a Merck manual right on my shelf. The coffee enemas were actually listed in the Merck manual all the way up to 1970. And then they fell out of favor and, you know, obviously they're, they're gross. I mean, so, and even myself on my health journey, it took me about, I don't know, eight months to get over the gross factor and get to the point where I'm like, okay, I want to try this. Right. But interestingly enough, they used it in the world wars because as they were taking soldiers to surgery, they would actually give them a water enema. They would want their bowels clear before they went to surgery. They ran out of water. Water was in shortage. And so I, I, I there was plenty of coffee. So the nurses decided to start using coffee. And when they did, what they found is that the patients had decreased post-op pain and they actually healed much quicker. Crazy, right? Wow. It was probably wasn't even good coffee. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh, wow. So that's kind of the history of it. There is one physician, his name is Dr. Gerson, who has kind of made coffee and more famous than 
most other people. And the reason is, is because he used it. He believed that it, it got rid of toxins, but he used it for cancer patients, specifically patients that had melanoma. Hmm. And the story is, and again, there's some articles written on like testimonies of these people's story. He wasn't allowed in the United States. So he actually, most of his, the Gerson Institute, I think is in Mexico. Yes, I've heard of him. Um, mm-hmm. But he, in his, part of his program is like fresh juices and like five or six coffee enemas a day. That's mm-hmm. a lot. I don't recommend that. He's the doc who really made it pretty famous. There is a little bit of research about it and I can go into that if you want, but the physiology or why these coffee enemas work is really two things because the coffee you're using is made up of two things, palmitic acid and caffeine. Mm. And what happens is these two things work kind of simultaneously in combined patterns, but also separately. And the caffeine, when you, and it does not work the same way if you drink it, unfortunately, Um, I, I would love that. But when you insert the coffee into your rectum, the caffeine actually goes, we have a special circulation, the portal circulation. So we have blood flow directly from the end of our colon straight to the liver. And so by way of that circulation, that caffeine actually helps the liver to detox, okay? When you do a coffee enema, you hold it for between 12 and 15 minutes is what your, the general guidance is. Okay. Your blood circulates through your body every five minutes about. And so if you're holding it for 15 minutes, you're getting the liver to detox three times. And so it's very, very powerful because of that, because you're getting all of your, your entire blood flow through your body, that five to seven liters is going through the the liver. And so it's really stimulates liver detox in a few different ways. Number one, it dilates the blood vessels that go to the liver, right? So you're getting more blood flow to the liver. Number two, it has the liver create more bile. So it increases bile production. And we know that that's a great detoxifier. It also relaxes the gallbladder. So it can also secrete a whole bunch more of bile salts and bile acids. The palmitic acid causes the liver to produce more glutathione. Mm. Glutathione is our body's biggest antioxidant, right? So that glutathione then goes around the body and circulates and able, is able to scavenge up those um, react, reactive oxygen species and oxidants or things that cause inflammation around our body. And so by doing that, that's how it detoxes the body. So it helps with depression by all of those methods because we're de- detoxing the body and decreasing the toxin burden, which also detoxes the toxin burden of the brain, right? Mm-hmm. But very especially, we have a nerve in our body, which is my favorite nerve called the vagus nerve. Right. And osteopathically, it's just an amazing nerve. It comes out from like right behind your ear, there's a little bump here. Right. right in between those two bones, that's where the vagus nerve comes out. It travels all the way down your neck into your thoracic cavity, into your abdominal cavity, and it innervates almost everything in your body. Right. I, know. The amazing I talk about part- the vagus nerve all the time. <laughs> I'm so glad you mentioned it. I mean, it goes right down to your sacrum. It's a huge nerve and it really stands. And it hits, like you said, almost every organ in your body. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And so the really cool part about this nerve is it gives off impulses to the body, but it also receives impulses. So it takes information from the rest of the body, incorporates it into the brain, and then gives off nervous input to wherever else it needs to go. Right. And so there, in the medical world, we call those the afferents, right? And so there are nerves that connect from that lower part of the colon afferently back to the brain. Mm-hmm. And so the caffeine and the palmitic acid and the distension of your colon more likely stimulates the vagus nerve, mm-hmm. travels that, that, that information travels back to your brain and actually decreases inflammation in your brain. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Wow. Absolutely amazing. So those are the three ways that doing coffee enemas help with depression and anxiety because you're clearing toxins, you're increasing anti-inflammatory components in your body, and you're sending signals to your brain to decrease inflammatory things in your brain. Wow. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. So, so how many times should someone do a coffee? Because you mentioned that Dr. Gershon said, what did, what did you say? Five to 10 times a day or something like that. You know, how many times do you recommend that for the so, average person? Obviously there's going to be, you know, situations where you'll clar- clarify for that particular patient, but just in general, what is your? Yeah. So yeah, it definitely depends on what someone's coming with. If their, their toxin burden is a lot higher. So let's say they're dealing with, you know, mold toxicities and MTHFR defects. So their livers aren't detoxing well anyway um we usually have them start by doing twice a week for a a period of usually about six to eight weeks Um, and then of course i'm reassessing to see what those organs feel like but at most times at that point you can go down to depending on on, and and the patient's going to know right i have patients that say i do this twice a week and my pain levels are decreased my concentration is better i can think better i can see better all of that. And so they say, I feel like my body needs to do it twice a week. And mm-hmm. I say, we'll play on that. Um, but typically somewhere between one and three times a week is what we, we generally recommend right. for me. And then, and then once you get into, okay, the toxin burden is lowered and you're getting kind of into that preventative, what do I do from a prevention standpoint? Then it really depends. Once a week is probably a good prevention just to kind of keep your body detoxing and those detox pathways open. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's about what I do. I started doing coffee enemas probably about mm, six or seven years ago on my health journey. And now I just use them preventatively. I've had, you know, my healing journey is that I have Hashimoto's. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had adrenal fatigue stage three. Mm-hmm. I've had a leaky gut. I have an MTHFR defect. And so I know that my body just doesn't detox as well as most people. And so my preventative plan is I usually do once a week. Mm-hmm. And if I feel like I'm getting extra congested or I'm having headaches or brain fog or I'm sick, then I bump it up and do it a few extra times that week. Wow. Yeah. So do you have a, a lot of your patients doing this, the coffee enemas? Is, is that we never recommend it on the first visit because we don't want them to run away and never come back. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you want them to get to know you and like you and trust you first, right? <laughs> Absolutely. So, and two things that I'll offer for your, you know, the, your podcast listeners is I put together an article just about kind of toxin management. And because there is 
clinically there is a sequence in my mind to the way the body detoxes. Mm -hmm. And so we always have coffee enemas listed on there on how to get your liver moving. Um, and I've also put together an online course just for people that are interested in it. It's like six or seven videos on the how to, what to be aware of, how to do it well, all that kind of stuff. Right. But yeah, we recommend it a lot. That's great. No, that's really great. So tell me, uh, how, how is this different or is it the same as colon hydrotherapy? Is that the great same question. thing or different? Different. So colonic hydrotherapy is when you, you have to go to someone who's actually certified in doing it. So it's a procedure that you can't do at home. It requires a special machine that kind of has an inflow and an outflow. And so when you, when you go for a hydrotherapy, they're using filtered water or purified water, and they insert a smaller tube into your rectum. It's a little bit wider than the tube that you would use for a coffee enema. Um, a coffee enema tubing is really not any wider than I would say like the end of, I don't know if you guys can see it. It's really not any wider than the, the circle there is right. the enema tubing that we're using. When you go for hydrotherapy, the tube that they insert is probably about that wide. So it's much wider that they insert into your rectum. And then they're just flowing water into your colon um, and massaging the top of your belly. And then, then they turn the release valve and let the water flow out. And so the water is doing a couple of things that hydrate your colon and hydrate your body actually, because you're going to absorb some of that fluid across the bowel wall. But really the tension and the pressure that the, the water is putting on your colon allows all that debris around the colon wall to release and come, come through. So it's not stimulating glutathione production. It's not stimulate living liver detox. It is really just hydrating the colon some hydrotherapists say that it's exercising the colon because you're distending it, right? But from a depression standpoint and the vagus nerve, the vagus nerve gets stimulated by the distension of the colon. Uh, okay. So you're still getting the stimulation of the vagus nerve. You're just not getting all that other detox, bile acid, glutathione stuff that you would with a coffee enema. Right. So does the coffee enema do the distension at all? So that's exactly what I was going to mention. Oh. You're still going to get with the coffee enema because most coffee enemas, most recommendations are a quart. So you're going to put a quart of fluid into your rectum. And so that still is going to be enough to distend your colon enough to stimulate the vagus nerve. Mm -hmm. And obviously for obvious reasons with, from the enema, you are going to get a, an evacuation and some clearing of the residual that's kind of lining the colon. Coffee is really good at, I know before there was some popularity and some people talking about that coffee enemas kill parasites. That is not true. Mm -hmm. There's nothing in coffee that is antimicrobial, but what it does do, so let's say this is your colon, right? Mm -hmm. As you live and with standard American diets and different infections, you're going to get kind of almost like a sludge around the inside, almost like your plumbing wood on your kitchen sink. Mm -hmm. Right. And so then that too, that colon kind of narrows because there's lots of sludge around there. Right. That sludge, what we call it is a biofilm. Right. And that's a really good place for parasites to hide 
to take up residence, protect themselves from getting killed or, or whatever, right? It's their nice little home that they protect themselves from. Right. And so the, the benefit of coffee enemas in the way of that is it does clear a lot of those biofilms. So we will use it on people that we're doing um, different gut protocols for as well, for that reason as well. Well, and caffeine is known to increase motility as well. I mean, Absolutely. a cup of coffee will help you to move your bowels. You know, sometimes people find that when they cut out coffee from their diet, they get a little on the constipated side. And so some people like to drink a cup of coffee just to get their bowels going. So it does increase and stimulate motility. So, so I'm assuming it does that from the other end as well. <laughs> right. yeah. So, so when you do the coffee enema, how far into the colon does the coffee go? Does it, does it transcend throughout the entire colon or is it just in the rectum? So great question. It depends how you are, your positioning when you're actually inserting and allowing the coffee to go in. Mm-hmm. As beginners, we usually tell people just to lay on their right side, and they're really just getting that that end part of the colon, that descending part. When you're, you've been doing it for a while, and you're, that part of your colon is somewhat clean, we can have people lie on their back, and then you do get some push over to the transverse colon. And there's a few other ways. So in other words, without too much detail, but you can come on your hands and knees and lower your head down so your bottom's kind of in the air. Right. And the fluid will run down your descending colon and then you lay on your back and it'll kind of be in the transverse colon. I don't know if there's any studies, there are not any studies that show, can you get it all to the ascending colon? I would doubt it. Right. But usually they say, when you look at or you talk to people that have done it for a really long time, they usually say that eight to 12 inches of, of your bowel is really what you're, you're clearing out. Right, right. Because I can imagine though that sludge is throughout the entire colon and not just you know, the last part of it. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see how much that sludge is throughout the colon. I, I don't know anything about whether that's the case or not. So it's just curious about your opinion on that. Yeah, it would be interesting to be able to somehow study that, but I'm not sure how you would do that. Well, I guess, you know, on autopsies, <laughs> you could really see. <laughs> I mean, there would be one way to do it in the long yeah. run. To really see where how far that sludge is there, because you're right that, you know, it's, it is like plumbing, you know, sometimes your pipes do get your plumbing in your home, your pipes do, you know, have this accumulation of all sorts of stuff, you know, from your, let's say in the shower, you know, hair clogs, the, the drains and, you know, have all sorts of just gunk. And you, when you pull that all out of your pipes, it's like, it looks like a rat's nest, but, uh, you know, kind of have similar things in our bodies and you're not eating the proper foods. You're not going to push that along. And, and, and and out you know out of your body so something like a copy enema is definitely going to help do that so even if you do it once and see how you feel I think will make a difference uh, you've talked about the benefits what are some of the risks of doing the copy enema and, and who is it not good for who shouldn't try it? Yep, you know, those are talking great. about you know a procedure that people are self-administering and and, you know, I'm sure there's going to be some people who really, you know, there's contraindications. This is, you know, we're giving medical education here. We don't want you to try this on your own unless you're educated about it. I mean, I'm sure your uh, online course will go through all of that, but it would be great if you could even mention some of the things that coffee enemas won't help with, because you mentioned the liver and the, and the gallbladder. Are there certain types of people with certain conditions who really should not be doing coffee enemas? You know. So 
yes, there are. And the few contraindications to doing it are really anatomical. So if you've ever had a fistula on your rectum or you've ever had a punctured rectum or gut, if you have an acute inflammatory condition going on in your gut, like if you have a flare of Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, that is not the time to be doing a coffee enema. Um, some people that have a lot of hemorrhoids, especially internal hemorrhoids, you're going, you may potentially irritate those. And then we say, if someone has really advanced immunologic deficiencies, so if their immune system isn't really working as well as it should in things like advanced cancer diagnoses, or even just immune deficiencies, those are people that probably need to check with a physician and make sure that it's okay or do it under guidance, right? Typically to prevent some of those things, we tell people you're only inserting the tube four to six inches and that is it. And if you go to insert the tube and you meet resistance, don't push it, the, don't push the catheter in any further to make sure that we're not doing anything that we shouldn't be doing. Right. Now the tubes, the tubes are silicone. They're not even rigid. So it's pretty hard to do any damage, but those are the people that we like to have very significant guidance over if they're going to do it. Right. Right. If someone who doesn't live in your area wanted to do this, when you talk about that kind of guidance, is there some kind of an association of, or group where you can call and say, Hey, you know, I, you know, I would like to do this copy enema. Can you help me out? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great question that I don't, I don't know the answer to actually. <laughs> I did. What comes to mind are certain patients that might have had like a colon resection. I'm wondering if they, you know, if they've had colon resections or if they, they've had gastric bypasses, any types of surgeries in the gut, probably gastric bypass should be okay, but the colon resection, I don't know, you know, so, or endometriosis yeah. or, you know, those kinds of conditions that are all in the lower abdomen, would those, would even endometriosis be, be benefited by something like coffee enemas? I think you certainly, it could be because it's going to, you know, one of the big things with, with that is just the inflam inflammation that's in the pelvis, right? And so um, that coffee enemas are going to help with decreasing this. What I would say is if someone has a large toxin burden and they do a coffee enema, you may have to give it a couple of times before you, before you make a decision whether this is something for your health journey or not. And the reason is, is because you can feel like absolute crud after you do your first couple enemas. And the reason is, is because if you're that toxic and you are doing this procedure to decrease your toxins, you're also going to circulate a bunch more toxins that your body can't quite get rid of, right? And right. so they can, you can have a Herx reaction by doing coffee enemas. And so typically I tell people, if you're going to start and be brave, and start one. I usually tell them to do it on a day that they don't have anything to do and make sure they have a good hour that they can actually just rest afterwards mm -hmm. because they actually feel, and the first time I did it, that's exactly how I felt. I felt like I was going to vomit. I felt like I was nauseous and I literally laid down and slept for about 45 minutes after. Yeah. Now that was a long time ago and I've learned a lot of things since like one really great tip is to take a binder 
I was just going to ask you that. Yeah. Do you follow up with binders after and what kind of binders do you use? Great question. So you can use the, the cheaper, easy ones, not the expensive, better ones. And let me explain that. So binders are usually made up of carbon, right? And so things like activated charcoal, the reason why they work is they, they're made up of a carbon. And so they have lots of little arms that can bind to things. And so carbons are great, but activated charcoal, the challenge with those is the carbons are so big that when we take them, they only stay in our intestines. They only stay in our guts. And so they're only gonna detox what is in the gut. And so other different, binders actually the carbon chains are much smaller and so they get to the cellular level those are obviously way more expensive they're great products and we use a lot of them for a lot of our patients but for this instance taking something like activated charcoal capsules like somewhere between two and three about a half hour before you do your enema and then right after you do the enema take two to two to three more because everything that you're going to detox is going to be really in that intestinal level anyway, right? Because your bile salts that the liver is producing are back in the gut. And so taking something like activated charcoal or chlorella or even the betonite clays, all of those are completely appropriate. Right. Great. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, you take them orally, not Yes. Really. <laughs> <laughs> we want to be very clear about that. <laughs> So yeah, so you take them orally and you said a couple hours before the enema and then a couple hours after the enema. 30 minutes before and then just after your enema. Oh, okay. So much sooner than that. Okay. Yeah. And what, how would you time your meals around that? Great question. I usually tell people to, to again, if they're going to, to give it a try, do it in the morning. Because the other thing, it is caffeine. And the caffeine, depending on what coffee, there's multiple different coffees you can use for coffee enemas, right? Mm -hmm. Who would have thought? And so depending on the type of coffee you're using, tells you how much caffeine is in that, that particular coffee. And so you still want to do it in the morning because there's still caffeine in it and it may make you feel a little wired and wake you up. And so doing it in the morning is probably the, the better option. And I usually say, I like to tell people to give about an hour before you have a meal, kind of allow your body to reset for a short period of time. I don't know if there's any real hard and fast guidance to food after a coffee enema. So for instance, for now, I do it once or twice a week, like I said, just right before work. Mm -hmm. So I do it in the morning, I come to work, I have no issues. But the first couple of times, you might want to make sure you have access to the bathroom for a few hours after your coffee enema. So, you know, I'm thinking about some patients who I have who would say like, you know, caffeine really keeps like really I'm sensitive to caffeine. And I, if I have a cup of coffee in the morning, I'm up all night or I'm anxious, you know. So I'm sure the question has come up is decaf coffee, you know, something that uh, that is acceptable, you know, for those people who are really sensitive to caffeine, because I know there's still some caffeine in decaf coffee. So just curious as to what you what you think about that. Yep. So great, great question. Let me back up to say that this is not something that you use like Maxwell House for or mm -hmm. Folgers, right? You right. do not do that. You want to use at least an organic coffee. And the lighter the roast, the more caffeine is in it. 
-hmm. right? And so you really want to get something that's really not roasted. And the reason is because you are causing by when coffee beans are roasted, you do cause a little bit of advanced glycosylated endpoints, right? And so the, the purpose of doing coffee enema is to detox yourself. So you don't necessarily want to use the coffees that are dark roasted. Okay. Right. That being said, I suggest buying actually coffee enema coffee. Okay. And the reason is, is because they, they have different kinds. So we usually start people with a medium roast and then go to a light roast and then go to an ultra light roast because that has the highest amount of caffeine and palmitic acid. The problem with decaf coffee is you need to make sure the way that they're extracting the caffeine is a, is a chemical process, right. right? So you can't just buy regular old decaf because then it's going to be loaded with toxins. And so if you're going to try a decaf coffee, we typically recommend, even for drinking, is something that is Swiss water pressed, right? And so that means that the, the caffeine is actually taken out by a water process and not a chemical process. Right. So right. that would be number one. But so glad you, you mentioned that. I'm kind of playing the devil's advocate because I know what yeah, you're nope, saying. Absolutely. I'm sure these questions come up all the time for you. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and so we typically would rather someone, if they're sensitive to coffee, instead of using decaf coffee, which you're not going to have as obviously the caffeine effect and you're not going to have as much palmitic acid just from the processing of it. We typically tell people to start with the medium roast and use half the amount of coffee. And so typically when you do a typical recipe, it is three tablespoons of coffee to one quart of water. Okay. So for our patients that are a little more sensitive, we usually start them with one tablespoon of coffee in a quart of water and see how that goes. Mm -hmm. And most people that are even sensitive to coffee are able to tolerate the coffee enemas except one condition. And maybe I should have mentioned this with the relative contraindications. If someone has um, histamine intolerance, because we know that coffee is a histamine producer, right. that if you're sensitive, not in a way that I'm awake all night, but sensitive in the way of a histamine reaction, whether you get tachycardic or itchy or rashy or blow up and become red, then typically we would work more with the binders and casserole packs and things like that, as opposed to using coffee enemas right off the bat. We okay. try and get those mast cells a little bit more stabilized before we do the coffee enemas. Got it. Got it. Yeah. So you, you give mast cell stabilizers first or do other things first to sort of bring down the histamine reactions. And yeah. Yes. So and sometimes we have patients even do well with a histamine blocker prior to their coffee enema. So if they take two quercetins, you know, a half hour, an hour before they do a coffee enema, they find that they don't have the histamine reaction to the coffee. Because I would imagine in the long run, it would yes. cause a reduction in mast cell reactivation, right? I could imagine. But it's almost like a Herxheimer's reaction in a histamine way. So that makes yeah. total sense. Yeah. Excellent. So and then the, the real benefit of these things is they're cheap, right? Like I find that in functional integrative medicine, we have great tools, we have great diagnostics and we have great supplements, but they all cost money right? A coffee enema kit to buy a good one that is stainless steel is 80 bucks mm -hmm. and it comes with coffee. Then it's just a matter of buying coffee and you're able to really benefit someone's health journey with a hundred bucks as opposed to on and on and on and on more supplements and things like that. Right. You know? Yes. It's a one-time kind of thing with the exception 
of buying the coffee. I'm mindful of your time. I know that you have a patient for the rest of the day and you've got to get something to eat too to sustain yourself. <laughs> I know that you have something to share with my audience that might help them if they are interested in doing the coffee enemas. I think you're giving us a free download on coffee enemas and mm -hmm. You mentioned a $20 coupon for your coffee enema course, which you charge $50. So there's a little bit of a discount there, significant discount actually. And so, yeah, I would love to, for you to share that with us and uh, tell us a little bit more about the course. And is that including, is it a course that also has links to where they, where people can order the whole kit? Yep. So the download, I think I linked it to you. And that just goes through kind of what we talked about history, presentation, how do you do it? What are the instructions? What do you need? All of that kind of stuff is all in the handout. The course is, I believe there are six, six or seven videos and it goes through all of the ins and outs. How do I clean my bucket? How do I use it? How do I make the coffee? How do I administer the coffee enema? And then there's a couple of bonus videos like advanced tips and tricks and things like that and troubleshooting. And there's also a link, once you click over to the, the website that has our course on it, there's a link on how you, you're able to purchase the kit. And it has, it, it should go right to the kit that I recommend. Excellent. Okay, and there are two separate kits. If you wanna just give it a whirl, sometimes we tell patients there is a plastic bucket one that is like, I think $20 cheaper. Ideally though, right, you're heating plastic and we're trying to detox ourselves. So the better option is do the stainless steel, which is another $20 investment, but I'll leave that up to your viewers, what they decide to do. Right, right. Oh, excellent. Thank you so much. These are great resources. It is certainly a lot less expensive to go this route as opposed to going from the top down, right? Is really start from the bottom. And, and yep. really clearing and, and activating all of those organs and the and the vagus nerve and this process and the and the way that you so beautifully described. I really appreciate everything that you've informed us. About. I've learned a lot in terms of osteopathic medicine and coffee enemas. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. I hope that you will join me in the future. If you are interested in working with me, please go to www.achinasteindo.com to book a discovery call. There you may also download for free the first three chapters of my book. I hope my work enlightens you, gives you hope, and moves you forward on your journey to a better mood and fulfilling life.